Hi, Journey. How y'all doing? Great to be with you, especially if you're our guest. We're really honored. That music in that bumper video kind of makes you want to get up and dance, right? Really? It doesn't? Like, come on. The nine o'clock people, they were like, definitely not. You guys are a little more alive. Lots of you know I had a uh, what they call a milestone birthday a couple of weeks ago, but I, I just wanted to, uh, yeah, no, no. I, I just wanted you to know that there's more than just my milestone birthday happening around here on our staff. Sam Bennett, our pastor of technology, he's having a major milestone birthday this weekend, okay? And if you want to know more about what milestone that is, you should talk to him about that. And then uh, Michelle Oakland, uh, who's been with us, like she was our third, did you know that Michelle Oakland was our third pastoral hire? way, way back in the, in the day, and uh, so she's having a major, major milestone birthday this weekend. Definitely can't talk about what that number is, but you should uh, <laughs> give them a hug and tell them you love them and tell them you hope it's the best year yet, whatever milestone it is for them. Celebrate their birth. Show of hands, this is audience participation time. How many of you love holidays? You, you just enjoy Holidays, yeah, most of you who are awake, you love holidays. And uh, to keep the audience participation thing going, I want you to, on the count of three, I want you to turn to the person on your left, and I want you to tell them what your favorite holiday is. Count of three, you're going to turn to the person, don't do it yet. Count of three, you're going to turn to the person on your left. My favorite holiday is, ready, one, two, three, my favorite holiday is, yeah, And that's just fun to talk about, isn't it? Kind of takes you back. And we're just like everybody else on planet Earth. We love to celebrate holidays, don't we? Nations the world over, they all have their unique days of celebration. And what do people celebrate on holidays? Well, they celebrate all kinds of stuff, don't they? Some holidays are in memory of significant political events. That's what our celebration of Independence Day on July 4th is, right? Other holidays, they commemorate birthdays of national heroes, presidents, and so on and so forth. Some holidays are for the purpose of celebrating a religious belief or even some kind of superstition sometimes. Thousands and thousands and thousands of holidays celebrated all over the world every single year. And, big old and. In sharp contrast to the thousands of holidays celebrated the world over, God himself established just seven holidays for his people, for the nation of Israel. Now you can read all about God's seven holidays all throughout both the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. There's only one place, however, it's Leviticus chapter 23, where all seven of God's holidays are listed in chronological sequence. And, another big old and, more than just being another ordinary holiday like every other one of the holidays, God calls his holidays, he calls his special days the feasts of the Lord. He sets his apart, and that's a really strong statement. He's saying, look, these days, these holidays, they belong to me, and they don't belong to anyone else, which is exactly why we've entitled this series that we're stepping into today, Feast. Now, the Hebrew word Remember, Hebrew is the original language of the Old Testament of Scripture. The Hebrew word translated to the English word for feast actually means appointed times. A feast is an appointed time. And so the idea God's trying to communicate there is that the sequence and timing of each of his feasts 
have been really carefully designed and orchestrated by him. They're part of a much grander, bigger picture, and they individually as well as collectively tell the story of God, the story of what he's about, the story of his desire to meet with humanity for his purposes. There's a few insights by way of overview of God's feast. First one is this one. The seven feasts that God established relate to Israel's spring and fall agricultural seasons. The nation of Israel was an agricultural nation, and so it would only make sense that God would establish his feasts on the same calendar that they're sort of functioning with as a culture. Second little insight. The timing of God's feast is based on the Jewish or the lunar calendar, which has roughly 354 days or so, but it changes from year to year, the number of days, and then every so many years, they've got this big catch-up thing they do, and, and that, have you ever noticed how Easter is sometimes in January, and sometimes it's in June? Like, have you ever, have you ever, it's not really quite that dramatic, but have you noticed how Easter moves? Like, sometimes it's early, and you're like, whoa, it's really early, and there's like feet of snow on the ground, and other times it's really late, and it's gorgeous out, and we're not hunting for eggs in three feet of snow, and so that's why, because it's not tied to our calendar, it's tied to the Jewish lunar calendar. Third little insight that's worth noting, the feasts, this is really cool, the feasts of the Lord typify the sequence, the timing, and the significance of the major events of Jesus Christ's redemptive career. These feasts actually look forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ and tell us the story of what he's going to do thousands of years before he actually ever did them which is why we're gonna spend these weeks leading up to Easter stepping through those celebrations, those feasts of the Lord, pressing into how they can actually cause our faith to grow, our worship of Almighty God to increase and expand. And just because we can, we're not gonna take them in chronological sequence because that'd be like all linear and boring. We're gonna kind of step through them a bit randomly if that's okay with you. The first feast of the Lord we're gonna talk about is the Feast of Trumpets. It's often referred to as Rosh Hashanah. We pick up the instruction for the Feast of Trumpets in Numbers, chapter 29, verse 1. On the first day of the seventh month, hold a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. It is a day for you to sound the trumpets. This is a really interesting one because while it would be really, really typical to incorporate musical instruments into the celebration of a holiday, right, it is quite rare for the substance of an entire celebration to be a musical instrument, especially the trumpet. You're like, seriously? A day of blowing on the trumpets? And the timing of the Feast of Trumpets just so happened to coincide with the beginning of Israel's civil new year, which over time melded to become more commonly known as Rosh Hashanah, which translates into English to mean the head of the year, the top of the year, the start of of the year. Rosh Hashanah on the Jewish calendar is observed in the fall, somewhere in the mid-September to early October time frame on our calendars. It is a one-day holiday. The Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah is a one-day holiday, and the Bible gets really precise about how they're supposed to celebrate the Feast of Trumpets. It's really straightforward. Leviticus 23, 23, starting. The Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. On the first day of the appointed month in early autumn, you are to observe a day of complete rest. It's another word for complete rest. Sabbath, right? This is a day of Sabbath. It will be an official day for holy assembly, a day commemorated with loud blasts of a trumpet. You must do no ordinary work on that day. Instead, you are to present special gifts 
to the Lord. And what's the deal with the trumpets? Why is God so interested in blowing on these trumpets? Well, I, this is an aside. For starters, most English translations of the Bible don't differentiate between the different kinds of Hebrew trumpets. Okay, there was a couple of different kinds. This is a picture of one kind of Jewish trumpet. It's called the Hatzazera. You want to say that with me? Hatzazera. Yeah, see, you learned a little Hebrew today. Hatzazera. Solomon, King Solomon, he had an assembly of 120 of this kind of trumpet, 120 Hatzazera ensemble during his reign. And can you imagine the cacophony of noise 120 of those would make when they were blown? There's another kind of Hebrew trumpet. You may have seen one of these before. It's actually this kind. Of, this is actually a trumpet right here. What's this one called? Shofar. That's exactly right. You can see it's the curved trumpet. It's been fashioned from a what? A, a ram's horn, right? We would have had another one over here. And the shofar was a really important part of Israel's history because this thing serves as a constant reminder of God's deliverance of, you know this story? Of Isaac when Abraham was about to sacrifice him to God. Remember, they go up the mountain to Abraham and his son Isaac, and it's taken a long time for Isaac to come onto the scene, and then God says, hey, I want you to take your son, and you're going to go out here, and you're going to, well, you're going to sacrifice him. And so Abraham has Isaac, like, tied, bound to the altar. He's got the knife raised up. He's about to kill him, and then, oh my gosh, over there in the shrubbery, there's a, a ram caught in the, in the shrubbery by its horns, and God doesn't want his people to ever, ever, ever forget his provision of that ram caught in the brush. And so Isaac, remember the story, got taken down off of the altar. And it said the ram was placed there. God doesn't want anybody to ever, ever forget that. And the shofar would have been blown during the festival of trumpets, the feast of trumpets, with a variance of blast. Now, uh, I, I would blow on this, but uh, I have this little thing, actually, this has this little thing called OPS. Do you know what OPS stands for? Other people's saliva. It's a pretty serious condition. I'm kind of a germaphobe, and so I'm going to be a great disappointment to all of you today, and I'm not going to blow on the shofar, this shofar in particular, because of its very serious condition known as OPS, other people's saliva. Why would we talk about that? Not other people's saliva, but why would we talk about the Feast of Trumpets? Why would we talk about the Feast of Trumpets? Because it's really, really important to us, even to this very day, and here's how and here's why. Rosh Hashanah, or the Feast of Trumpets, is the invitation that God makes to every single person, not just the nation of Israel, but to every single person to repent. It's in celebration of God's invitation for every single person to repent. And let's face it, repentance is the life or death issue in the scripture, isn't it? Repentance is the big deal with God. On one hand, repentance is about turning away from our sin, forsaking our sin. Ezekiel 18, verses 30 and 31, God says this, repent and turn from your sins. Don't let them destroy you, which is what happens if you just stay in it. Put all your rebellion behind you and find yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Turn back and live. 
which begs the question, turn back to where? Turn back to whom? Well, on the other hand, repentance is about turning back toward God, isn't it? Putting your complete, total, utter faith and trust in him and in him alone. Turn back to him. And, and look what happens to the person who repents and turns back to God. Psalm chapter 2, verse 12. What joy for all who take refuge in him. Especially for the person who is hanging out in sin over here, forsakes that sin, leaves it, repents, and turns back. What joy for all, any and all, who repent and take refuge in him. And we come to God only in one posture. Look how he says it, Isaiah 45, verse 23. This will be a familiar text to lots and lots of you. Every, this is how we come to God. Every knee will bend to me. Every knee will bend to me. And every tongue will confess allegiance to me. And we do not come to God in any other posture. And God wants to be real, real clear. Look, there's a day coming when Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, is coming back. He's returning to Jerusalem. He's going to reign over the earth forever and ever. And not everyone will enter his kingdom. Not everyone will enter his kingdom. Only those who have repented and confessed him as Savior and Lord, bent their knee to him, declared allegiance to him, will enter his kingdom. Which is why it's so incumbent upon us to be making that invitation to Jesus Christ with everything we do and with everything we say. That our whole lives would point to the gospel of Jesus Christ because we do not want anybody to be left out of the kingdom of God. Not a single person do we want to be left out of the kingdom of God. We want them all in. All in. Rabbi Eliezer, who was one of Israel's ancient rabbis, he declared this one time. Repent one day before your death. Interesting. That kind of sounds like, like a last minute salvation. Like, live like hell, right? And then one day before your death, then clean it all. That's not what he was saying. His followers, they were picking up on this like, whoa, are you sure, Rabbi? They actually ask him, does then one know on the day that he will die in response to his statement, repent one day before your death? His followers said, does then one know on what day he will die? The rabbi replied, then all the more reason that he or she repent today then all the more reason that he or she, you or I, repent today. Turn away from our sin, forsake our sin, turn back into God, run headlong into him, plunge headlong into your loving heavenly father today. Because no one knows when they'll die, which means that our repentance then is, is urgent. And the Bible again and again and again echoes that sentiment. And some people, they're, they're just going through life, living however they want to, and they're like, yeah, I'll attend to this God and spirituality thing. I'll attend to my salvation at some later date. But no one knows. Today is the day of repentance because no one knows the number of our days. No one knows the day of Christ's return. And so God says, Jesus says, we should say, seek him now while the gates of repentance stand wide open. 
And there's this really cool text, Micah chapter 7, verse 19. To those who repent, look at what the scriptures say. God will trample our sins under his feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. You, God, will trample our sin, my sin, under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. Which means, you, you know, those sins that you can't forget, God cannot remember. Those sins that you cannot forget, God cannot remember. Look, he tramples our sins under his feet. He throws them into the depths of the ocean and cannot remember. Repentance is urgent. Today is the day of repentance. I want to talk about one more feast of the Lord. This one is called the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot or the Feast of Outfitter Wall Tents if you're from Montana. The Feast of Tabernacles, as it's appropriately called, is the seventh and final feast. It's the most joyful and festive of all of Israel's feasts. It's also the most prominent feast, mentioned more often in Scripture than any of the other feasts. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 34, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. Begin celebrating the festival of shelters, festival of tabernacles, festival of outfitter wall tents on the 15th day of the appointed month, five days after the day of atonement. This festival to the Lord, check this out, will last for seven days. It's a seven-day party that God institutes. That word shelters in the text comes from the word tabernacle. It can also be translated to the English word booth or hut or tent even, and the name Feast of Tabernacles came about because of the requirement for all Israelites to live in a temporary shelter, to live in a tabernacle during that entire week of celebration. God says, I want the Feast of Tabernacles to be an annual reminder of my provision when? Do you know when? During the 40 years that Israel wandered out in the desert when they all live for those 40 years in very similar shelters to these. They're commemorating God's past goodness. They're commemorating his provision during their wilderness sojourn as well as his present goodness and provision via the completion of the harvest of that year's crops. Have this party after all of your crops have been brought in and then we're gonna celebrate how good I've been to you, God says. That means the Feast of Tabernacles comes to pass wind's harvest season, the fall, right? Well, you guys sleeping? Comes to pass in the fall of the year, in the seventh month, again, that's late September to mid-October on our calendar. It lasts seven days. The first day and the day after the last day, the eighth day they call it, are considered Sabbath, no work on those days. And God goes to great lengths to detail in Leviticus 23 the specifics of the celebration. Remember that the seven-day festival to the Lord, the festival of shelters, begins on the 15th day of the appointed month after you have harvested all the produce of the land. The first day and the eighth day of the festival will be days of complete rest. 
On the first day, gather branches from magnificent trees, palm fronds, boughs from leafy trees, and willows that grow by the streams. So the only thing that's missing from our tabernacle over here is these, uh, all these palm fronds and branches from all these leafy trees that would have been hanging, uh, adorning. All. We don't have any palm trees around here. That's why they're missing. You understand, right? Theirs would have been adorned with all of that and then celebrate with joy before the Lord your God for seven days. You must observe this festival of the Lord for seven days every year. No cheating. You don't get to scrimp on this party. It's a seven-day party. This is a permanent law for you. It doesn't change. It must be appointed, it must be observed in the appointed month from generation to generation. For seven days you must live outside in little shelters. All native, it was a mandate by God, all native-born Israelites must live in shelters. This will remind each new generation of Israelites that I made their ancestors live in shelters when I rescued them from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Just in case you're wondering where this all comes from, it comes from the Lord your God. And because of the joy that was associated with the Feast of Tabernacles, this feast actually became known by rabbis simply as the holiday. They just called it the holiday because it's like it's the one. It was one of the pilgrim feasts. That means it was one of the three times during the year. Every single Jewish male, didn't matter where you lived, how far from Jerusalem you lived, you were required to appear before God in the temple in Jerusalem Every person would have brought tithes because the scripture said you do not want to appear before God empty-handed. So they would have brought the best into the temple to give to God for his work. And then there was great importance seen put on the number of required sacrifices during the Feast of Tabernacles week. Every single one of the seven days, a goat, 14 lambs, two rams, and a number of ox or cattle, starting with 13 on the first day and decreasing by one each consecutive day, were offered to God on the altar in the temple. It would have been a bloodbath. All those animals killed, sacrificed, given to God. Now, that's all well and good. But there's this little piece of the Feast of Tabernacles we don't always know about, hear about, think about, talk about. The timing of the Feast of Tabernacles just so happens to coincide with Israel's changing of seasons. It marks the beginning of the winter or the rainy season. Here's a bit of trivia for you. Did you know that the city of Jerusalem receives as much precipitation as London, England does? wouldn't think about that. You're like, yeah, it's the desert out there, right? As much precipitation as London, England receives. The difference is that Jerusalem's rainfall occurs not all year long, occurs between November and March. Between the months of November and March. So all that rain brings the necessary moisture for working the soil, for sprouting new crops. But if for some reason the weather patterns are such that several weeks of rainfall are missed, a dire water shortage can quickly develop for the coming year's crops trouble fast and because of the feast of tabernacles is observed at this really really important juncture when the anticipation of rain is at its climax the two things have become inseparably connected so picture this all the pilgrims from all the jewish 
Folks from around the world, they're making this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They arrive in Jerusalem. They focus before the day before the feast begins. They focus all their energies on building their booth, building their tabernacle for the feast. They're gathering palm fronds and so. And so the afternoon of the day before the start of the feast, there were then all of a sudden, like where there wasn't, then all of a sudden, there was thousands upon thousands of these booths that lined the fields, dotted the surrounding fields and hills all around Jerusalem. Important note, they all would have been located within a Sabbath day's journey, which is just a little more than half a mile from the temple. You could not be further than a little more than half a mile from the temple. And then at sundown, the day before the festival would begin, the blast of the shofar from the temple mount announced, look, the holiday's here. All of a sudden, the sense of excitement would be palpable over the city, over the shelters, over the hills. Darkness would fall. The Israelites would party all night long, hanging out together. And then the next morning would have begun with a water ceremony. Shortly after dawn, each of the seven mornings, while the sacrificial animals were being prepared, the high priest would take a picture. He would be accompanied by a joyous procession of music and worshipers. He would leave the temple mount with that picture, and he would go all the way down to the Pool of Siloam, it's called. He would have carried this picture, ornately decorated. He would dip that empty pitcher into the Pool of Siloam. He would fill it up, and he would carry it full of water, not dripping any water, back up to the temple mount. He would go inside of the temple. He would proceed to the great stone altar in the inner court of the temple. He would raise the pitcher of water, full of water, above his head. People, the congregation, all gathered around, would shout out, raise your hand, raise your hand. And as they shouted that, he would pour the water, every last drop of it, out over the altar. It would run down over the sides, off the edges, onto the ground. Now the pitcher's empty. The congregation would now be waving their palm branches, okay? And they would join in singing this psalm, 118 verse 25. Please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. Does that scene and does that psalm sound at all familiar to anybody? Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm, it's called. It gives the Feast of Tabernacles thus a messianic foreshadowing, an emphasis on the coming Messiah, the coming Savior. His name is what? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus in church is always a safe answer. Even if you like, have no clue, it's almost always a safe answer. Does that sound at all familiar? Remember Jesus entering Jerusalem what did the crowd shout to him? Triumphal entry. What did they shout? Hosanna. What does Hosanna mean? Save now. Hosanna means save now. What were they waving? Palm branches. Why were they waving that? Why were they saying that? Because they viewed Jesus as the Messiah. They viewed him as the king. They viewed him as the deliverer. They said, save us now. They believed Jesus Christ to be the fulfillment of Psalm 118, they hailed him then with this messianic imagery, palm branches from the Feast of Tabernacles. See, Psalm 118, Feast of Tabernacles. Water ceremony, Feast of Tabernacles. 
I'll show you how that ties in in just a moment. So the water ceremony, followed by the numerous sacrifices, were the daytime activities of the Feast of Tabernacles. Then during the evening of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Israelites celebrated with one of the most impressive light ceremonies you could ever imagine. As the sun started to set, everyone would crowd into the vast outer court of the temple. It was called the Court of the Women. In the center of the court stood four towering menorahs. You know what a menorah is, this giant lampstand. These were huge menorahs, each with four branches of oil lamps. The wicks of the lamps were made from the worn-out linen garments of the priests of the temple. Each menorah had four long ladders leading way up to those lamps. There would have been a crew, a brigade of young priests who would have been going up and down those ladders constantly all night long with buckets of olive oil to keep those lamps burning. Don't let them go out. And the light of that celebration would have been absolutely breathtaking. Can you picture it? All night long, the elders of the Sanhedrin, they would have performed these impressive fire torch dances while the steady yellow flames of those giant menorahs flood the temple, flood the streets of Jerusalem with brilliant light. Now the gospel writer John, he records that it was the day after the Feast of Tabernacles, on that eighth day, remember that day is considered a Sabbath, Jesus was returning from the Mount of Olives to teach in the temple. The Pharisees, the professional legalists of Jesus' day, they're trying to entrap him and look at what goes down. John chapter eight, verse 12. Here's what the Bible says. Jesus spoke to the people once more and he said, I am the light of the world. Remember what just happened the night before. And look what Jesus says. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. And so we say, well, this is a cool messianic claim. Jesus claiming to be the light of the world world, but he's doing something there. He's twisting it up on the folks who would have just the night before seen this giant light fire celebration. It was right here, tip of their mind from the previous six nights. And he says, you know what? That light's cool and all. Those big flaming menorahs, that's all fantastic. But the light that I offer, the light that I am, is going to light the entire world not just the temple, not just the city of Jerusalem. And then he really messes with them. He says, and you know what? I'm the source. It's me. It's not those big menorahs. Those are cool and all, but I'm the source. And what's he doing there? Well, he's offering salvation. He's offering forgiveness. Trust me, he says. Put your faith and trust in me. You don't have to walk in darkness anymore. You can walk in the light of the world. He was making the invitation a couple thousand years ago, and it's the same invitation he's making to us to this very day, right here, right now. I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. And it gets really personal really fast with a question. Have you personally experienced the life-changing light of the Messiah, Jesus Christ? 
Have you personally experienced the light of the light of the world, Jesus Christ? Or are you still walking in darkness, trying to figure it out, trying to... You don't have to walk in darkness. Jesus says, come home to me. You can come home to me right now. One more thing as we wrap up today. I want to show you just one more little thing related to the Feast of Tabernacles. So there's three, I told you I was going to talk to you about water. There's three types of water sources in Israel. First one is cisterns. You all know what a cistern is. In Israel, there are these huge rock-hewn collection tanks dug right out of solid rock. They collect millions of gallons of rainwater during the rainy season. To this very day, in particular, at a place called Masada, these still exist. Massive cisterns, millions of gallons of water in them. But you know something about cisterns? They're the least desirable of any water source, least valuable of any water source in Israel. Why? Well, because they can become really, really easy, con easily contaminated, right? Like a mouse is walking around the edge and mouse has a heart attack and dies and falls in and yuck, right? You're not going to drink that water anymore. It has a dead mouse in it. They become stagnant in a hurry. They can't be replenished until the next rainy season. Second water source in Israel is wells. A well is a more valuable water source than a cistern, of course. They have fresh, they provide fresh, replenished water, but even in a drought, a well can dry up, right? It happens. The most valuable water source in Israel, what is it? Yeah, it's a stream, it's a brook, it's a river fed by springs, right? The Bible has a word, two words actually, for those kinds of water. What is it called, that kind of water? Living water. In other words, water that moves, right? And God makes reference to that whole deal in order to bring Israel's rebellion and idolatry to light in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. Check this out. For my people, this is God talking to his people, the nation of Israel, they've done two evil things. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water. They've turned away from the best, finest source of water possible. It's him, it's God. They've turned away from him. And they've dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. They've left the best source of water and they've turned to the worst source of water. And Jesus Christ, he addresses the people in the temple on the last day of the feast of tabernacles. Every single morning they've been doing this elaborate water offering thing. Priest takes the pitcher down to the pool of Siloam, hauls it back up. The people shout out and sing. And look at what Jesus says. Last day of the festival, John chapter 7. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds. He's trying to get everyone's attention. He doesn't want anybody to miss this. Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Whoa. And they all have fresh, very fresh in their minds this water offering deal that they've been doing every single day. Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of 
living water, the best kind of water you can imagine, will flow from his heart. He, Jesus Christ, is the source of the very purest water, the most valuable water, water that will never dry up. It's him. And it's only him. And he was inviting people 2,000 years ago to drink from him, the source of living water, and he's making that very same invitation to every single one of us, every single person on planet Earth to this very day. Are you thirsty to live in relationship with the creator, with the God of the universe? Are you thirsty to know that you know that you know that you have abundant life here and now and you have eternal life forever and ever? We all chase around, lots and lots of us, we chase around and we try to drink from all kinds of sources of water to satisfy our spiritual thirst and Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, there's only one that'll satisfy you. There's only one source of water that will quench your spiritual thirst of any person and it is the living water sourced in Jesus Christ. It's him and it's only him. It's no one else. It's nothing else. He's it. I'm the light of the world, he says. I'm the living water. You don't need anybody else. You don't need anything else. It's me, Jesus says. Take your stuff and set it aside, if you would, and I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. I invite you to go to the Lord with all of this that we've been thinking about and talking about today. Maybe you're someone who's here today and you're thirsting for the living water of Jesus Christ. He says, look, you don't have to thirst anymore. You can trust him with your whole heart, your whole life, your whole eternity, and you can do that by praying with me right now, right where you're sitting. If that's you, I invite you to pray with me like this. Jesus, been drinking from a lot of different water sources and I've been trying to quench the spiritual thirst and well nothing's working Jesus I need you I get it I'm a sinner and that's part of what that search has been it's been about me trying to save myself from my sin I, I can't do it Jesus it's you I need it's you I want Will you, Jesus, quench my spiritual thirst once and for all? And by faith, Jesus, I gratefully receive your gift of salvation. You're what I need. You're my Lord. You're my Savior. You're my boss. 
And with all the gratitude I have in my body, Jesus, I thank you for dying on that cruel cross for my sins in my place. Thank you for rising from the dead for me, Jesus. Here's my everything. I trust you, Jesus. And if you're stepping across the line of faith into the saving faith of Jesus Christ today, that's the biggest decision, biggest deal in your whole life. It matters so much that we like to acknowledge when people step across the line of faith in Christ. It's a private moment. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. Nobody's looking around this room. It's you, me, and God. If you prayed with me just then to trust Christ with your whole heart, your whole life, your everything, to drink from the source of living water, Will you be so bold right now and will you just slip your hand up and lock eyes with me and let me acknowledge your decision with you right over here to my right. Yeah, way to go. And you too, and you too, and you too, and you, and you, yes. Keep your hands up, would you? I want to, yeah, both of you right here. Yes, absolutely. And there, yes. And there, and there. Yeah, both of you right there. Yeah. There, you too, yes. Way to go. You don't have to be thirsty anymore. Yes, you don't have to walk in darkness anymore. Jesus says, it's me. Yeah, there, yes. Way to go. Yeah, over here, yes. Yeah. It's me, Jesus says. Yeah, I see you back there. Way to go. Here, yes. Way to go. Yes. Absolutely. You don't have to walk in darkness. You don't have to be thirsty. Jesus says, I quench your thirst. I'm the source of light. Whoa, Jesus, we celebrate with you these who are stepping into faith in you today. We believe you, God, and the angels in heaven are celebrating and our hearts are rising to you in gratitude that we get to be a little part of what you're doing here on planet Earth. Whoa. Thanks for giving us a glimpse, God, of what it looks like for your kingdom to break in right here to the kingdom of this world. Jesus, we pray that that would be our constant posture that we would live in pursuit of your kingdom breaking in through our lives every single day. That we'd trust you as our light and that we would trust you as our living water, source of living water every single day, Jesus. Through ups, through downs, good times, bad times, flat times, that we'd trust you, that we'd follow you, that we'd pursue you, and Jesus, that we would be on the mission of displaying and declaring your gospel. Because we recognize time is running out. You're coming back. And Jesus, help us, please help us make it real hard to go to hell from the Gallatin Valley. Help us make it real hard 
to go to hell from the Gallatin Valley. You are great and you are good and you are God and we trust you with our everything.